Hey everybody, welcome back to our series going through the Gospel of Luke. We're currently in Luke chapter 2. Last week we talked about the birth of Jesus and all the different kinds of historical events surrounding it and, and how Luke really wanted us to understand um, the context. He wanted us to understand what was going on in and around the time. And so I encourage you to go back and look at that. Today we're talking about uh, Luke chapter 2 verses 21 to 40 and in this section we have a lot of fulfillment of the requirements of the law, uh, what it meant to be a faithful Israelite uh, who was in service to the Lord. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2 and we're going to be reading uh, verses 21 to 24. Luke chapter 2 verse 21 to 24. And if you do not know where the Gospel of Luke is at the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. Now you just go ahead and use it. And uh, by using it, just want you to know that you're going to become more familiar with where things are in the Bible. And then that way you'll just be able to turn there naturally eventually. So if you have your Bibles again, Luke chapter 2, I'm going to be reading verses 21 to 24. Here's what it says. When the, time for, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, talking about Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Consecrated to the Lord is the idea of being set aside for, dedicated to uh, the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, let's pray together as we dive into more of what this passage actually has to say to us. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together, and I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word, uh, that we're going to gain some insight, some understanding, some context to help us appreciate uh, your story more fully. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged. I pray, Lord, that we would learn. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk forward with a greater confidence in the fact that you work in your world, you work in your creation, and you bring about your promises. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So there are surprisingly few details about the life of Jesus before his public ministry. It's always been an like, a, like a curious thing to me. You know, we have the birth of Jesus, we have Jesus as a, as a young age that we're going to be covering uh, both today and, and next week, but there's not a lot told about his upbringing. So here's what that then says to me, that whatever is said is really significant. Because we don't have like this entire biography of Jesus's, you know, uh, early years of life, it is critical for us to understand at greater depths what is written, because there's got to be some significance to it. And so, here we have some important details of the weeks just after the birth of Jesus, followed by a more general description of his growth and his development. And, and it's important also for us to note these, this idea that we're about to walk into um, the, this conversation about a prophet and a prophetess. And both of them give insight into uh, or reveals Jesus's global and his messianic and redemptive mission and that's an interesting thing too because they just start speaking into it and and i believe that that joseph and mary would have been caught off guard a little bit about how these two people who had never met jesus began to speak of jesus 
So, if we look into our passages for today, looking at verses 21 to 40, verses 21 to 24 that I just read is this prelude. It's the Jesus fulfilling the law of Moses. And so in verse 21, there's this circumcision and the naming of Jesus. It says, and when eight days were completed before his circumcision, he came. Oh, sorry, his name was then called Jesus and the name, the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And the whole idea of circumcision, it identified Jesus with the Jewish covenant people. Remember that circumcision, and, and I will say remember, but for those of you who may, for those of you who don't know, that circumcision was the physical sign of the covenant relationship between God and his chosen people. And so Jesus being circumcised fulfilled a law of the covenant, the requirements of the law. And then on top of that, we also find that in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, uh, this is where it is cited. It says on the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. So you have right in the beginning, you, you have the idea that Jesus was in fact Jewish. He was a Hebrew boy. And that's important as we understand the context, because from this point forward, we have to remember that Jesus was Jewish. This is a Jewish narrative that is extended to the Gentile world, but, but Jesus was absolutely Jewish. And so customs and, and ways of functioning were often very, very Hebrew. Verse 22 to 24, we have the purification of Mary and the presentation before the Lord in the temple at Jerusalem. And so for a woman who gave birth to a male child, uh, she would ceremonially be unclean for seven days after that child's birth. Circumcision would take place then on the eighth day. And then for another 33 days, uh, she, she would be required, uh, sorry, another 33 days would be required before she was allowed to enter the sanctuary or touch anything that would be considered holy. This was all ritual rites of purification, uh, part of what it meant to be within, uh, under the law. Warren Worsby, a famous commentator says, our Lord's relationship to the law is an important part of his saving ministry. He was made under the law, according to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And although he rejected man's religious traditions, he obeyed God's law perfectly, according to John chapter 8, verse 46. And he bore the curse of the law for us, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, and set us free from bondage, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And so what we have here is... Jesus going through everything that needed to be gone through for a firstborn son who is under the law. And then you have this thing called uh, a consecration. Uh, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2 and verse 12, it says, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. So this is important. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, dedicated to the Lord. They are His. That's not a small thing. And so again, part of the law's custom. And in verse 12, it says, You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Another commentator by the name of Walter Liefeld, he says, Luke is conflating or, or bringing together the performance of these Old Testament obligations into a single narrative. It shows how Jesus was reared in conformity with them. Uh, 
His parents obeyed the Lord, chapter 1, verse 31 of Luke, in, name, in naming him. The, offspring, the offering of birds instead of a lamb shows that he was born into a poor family. Verse 24, there was this commanded sacrifice. And Leviticus gives us an indication as to the financial background that you would find Joseph and Mary in. It indicates that an offering reflected the poverty of Mary and Joseph. In verse 8 of Leviticus chapter 12, it actually says, now this is talking about after the woman has given birth and the time of purification has taken place and she comes to then bring an offering to the Lord, it says, but if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. And so the idea here is that um, it helps us understand that Jesus actually was born into poverty. And, and we don't know to what extent the poverty was. What we do know is that Mary and Joseph were unable to afford to bring this lamb forward as an offering. And so instead, they brought the two pigeons. That's significant. Uh, again, because it gives us an indication uh, as to the, the wealth that Jesus grew up in, or for that matter, didn't grow up in. Moving on from there, we have verses 25 to 26. We say this, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. And then it says, It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so Luke's phrase here of the consolation of Israel is striking. And the reason it's striking is because it's clearly taken in this messianic sense, in the idea that, that he's waiting for God's Messiah to arrive. Throughout their history, the people of Israel had suffered greatly, both because of their own sin, but then also because of the neighboring nations and imposing their will on Israel as well. Their land was frequently overrun by foreigners and, and their powers, uh, who knew strategic significance of the region of Israel, which connected Africa, Europe, and Asia. And Israel is this pivotal space in the region. They also suffered under slavery in Egypt and endured the troubles of the exile. They were people in desperate need of consolation and comfort, the kind of permanent comfort that would come from the son of David who would arrive to guard them and to provide the forgiveness of their sin. As a matter of fact, this idea of the consolation of Israel comes back to Isaiah chapter 40 and Isaiah 53. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 and 2, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service had been completed, that her sin had been paid for, that she had received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is this idea of the penalty of sin being taken care of. And so there is comfort in knowing that when Messiah comes, this is going to take place. And then Isaiah 53, which is a fairly familiar passage to many, verses 10 to 11, it says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And through, and through the Lord, though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and, proclaim, and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied, 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And so there is this comfort that Simeon is looking for, and he's looking back into Isaiah in terms of the language that Luke is using here, understanding that the comfort, the consolation of Israel is the coming of Messiah. And in the coming of Messiah, there is this idea that all of that weighty, heavy sin, they will unburden themselves with it because Messiah will take it upon himself. As a matter of fact, it even says here, he will bear their inequities. And so Simeon spent his life waiting for this consolation. For the Messiah to come and redeem his people, he had been given this unique promise that he wouldn't die until he saw the Christ. The Messiah with his own eyes. Like, this is enormous because God had been silent with Israel for 400 years. And so to suddenly, through the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, be confirmed within his spirit that he would not die before he sees the Messiah come, man, the, the amount of encouragement that that must have brought. And, and along with it, probably some sense of wonder and, and curiosity as to how this was going to come about. And so when he's an old man, this promise is finally fulfilled. And he marveled at the glory of God in the face of this infant Jesus. As a result, he was prepared to die and meet his maker. What an incredible thing. You know, he actually, looking upon the face of Jesus, he, he says, okay, that's it. That's all I need. I'm ready to go. Verses 27 to 32 uh, they tell us here, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought the child Jesus uh, to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God. And then it says here, he praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of your people, Israel. And so there is this acknowledgement. Like there's a couple of things that are happening here that I think are important. Like, like so you have this acknowledgement within um, Simeon's statements, his prophecy, you could say, uh, that talk about this universal redemptive mission of the Messiah. But in addition to that, there's some other stuff that's there. You know, like he's in verse 27, he's moved by the Spirit. And so moved by the Spirit, he goes into the temple courts. So the same Spirit that conferred on him the, the belief that he would not die before seeing the Messiah is the one that says, hey, okay, here it is. I'm going to point you to where you're going to meet him. Now, sidebar, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus in everything that we do. So when you're a believer and you have the Holy Spirit in your life, the Holy Spirit's always going to point you to Jesus and away from the things that are not of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin and, and move us towards Jesus and is going to lead us into all truth and going to guide us in the ways of the Lord. And that, that's what the Holy Spirit does. And so even here in the life of Simeon, He's moved by the Spirit, and so he goes into the temple courts. 
And it also says that there is this obedience that's related to the Old Testament law. Of course, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. And so there is this thing that's taking place. You have people who are trying to be faithful to the Old Testament law, right? Because Jesus is born under the law. Joseph and Mary were under the law. Simeon was a servant of God who, who communicated the law. And so Simeon, a man of God, moved into the temple courts. Joseph and Mary, wanting to be faithful to the Lord's law, go to the temple courts, and there is this divine encounter, a divine meeting, a divine appointment, you could say, that they then experience. And in verses 28 and 29, we see that Simeon took him in his arms, and he started praising the Lord, said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. And in doing so, like, he recognizes the purpose of Jesus. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And so that consolation of Israel that Simeon had been waiting his life for, that the entire nation of Israel had been waiting for, that Isaiah speaks of, Simeon now experiences and sees with his own eyes. And so he then, in verses 31 to 32, he refocused himself both towards the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, what you have prepared in sight of all nations. And so he, he directs the attention, talking about the salvation that God has provided is for all nations. And so he looks and he directs it towards the Gentiles and he says, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. That's you and me. We're not Jewish, most of us. And so we're the Gentiles in the story. And Jesus is a light of revelation, uh, the revelation of God's salvation to the nations, to the Gentile world, to us. And Simeon sees this. He's not ethnocentric in the sense that he is thinking that this is just Israel's consolation. Because it, Simeon, being a man of God, will remember the promise given to Abraham that says that through his seed, the entire world will be blessed. And here we are, the entire world being blessed, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And then he turns his direction towards the Jewish community and the glory of your people, Israel. And so it is this idea that that the world would be blessed through Abraham's seed, that is Jesus, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. You have this incredible image of Jesus coming for the entire world, not just the outside world, and not just the ethnocentric focus for Israel. Jesus' purpose was a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. And then you have what you could call the ultimate impact of the child. In verses 33 to 35, it says here, The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, talking about Jesus. And then Simeon blessed him, and he said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And so as Joseph and Mary marveled at those things that were being spoken about him, Simeon then blesses them and says to Mary, Mary look, like Jesus is gonna be the cause of the rising and falling of people. And in addition to that, 
like he, he, he's going to be a sign that people are going to speak against and your own heart, your own soul is going to get pierced through this as well. As you read the passage and start breaking it down, the idea that Joseph and Mary would be marveled at, or would marvel at what Simeon was saying, I think makes sense. Like if somebody was saying this to me about one of my kids, I'm going to be in shock about the kinds of things they're saying. We can imagine the combination of joy and surprise to see how God has touched the hearts of others with an understanding of their son. Because up until this point, it was not necessarily a large grouping of people that were having these conversations about Jesus necessarily being sent by the Lord. You had Gabriel confer the message. You had Elizabeth and Zechariah. You had Joseph and Mary. And now we have Simeon and Anna. No matter how well you know Jesus, there's something special about seeing someone else come to know him. It's just true. It's just true. And so Simeon continues on, and he says that Jesus is going to be the cause for the fall and rising of many. Now, this will be shown in the way that Peter repented, but Judas despaired. In that one thief blasphemed and the other one believed, Jesus like a, is like a magnet. He's kind of attractive to some and others are repelled by him, right? Like he would become the stone that, that many will trip on and, and, and have difficulty with. And it even says here, like Simeon continues on and it's almost as if it's like a good news, bad news thing. It's a sign that will be spoken against. And the sign literally, it's the idea of a target that we, people will shoot at. Like people will rise up against him. Jesus would be a target of great evil. A sword that will pierce your own soul also. And so it was important for Mary to know that mothering the Messiah, like she is to be the mother of Jesus. Like of God. It wouldn't all be just rainbows and butterflies. It was both a great privilege, but it was also a great burden. Because if he was to take on the iniquity of the people, there's a way that that would need to happen. And that would be crushing for a mom, and for a dad, that matter. I think it's safe to say that no other human agonized as much over Jesus' rejection and suffering as his mom did. I really don't think so. It wasn't only because of the natural love of mother, but because his rejection was also her rejection in a way. Wonderfully, his vindication was also hers. And, and then we have this incredible older woman enter the scene. Now, Simeon was this guy who gave this great prophetic message uh, and received, but prompted by the Holy Spirit, received the promise that he would not die before seeing the Messiah. And then you have this prophetic insight regard, from Anna regarding the baby Jesus. Uh, verses 36 to 38. Here's what it says. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage uh, and then was widowed until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. 
Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And so there's this unique role for Anna. Uh, Anna is actually, the tribe of Asher is actually one of the lost tribes of Israel. Now I want you to picture this, I want you to get this, because this may not seem like a big deal when you're just reading over the story, but remember, not a lot is said about Jesus's younger years, and so whatever is said is significant. Here's what this is. Anna is of the tribe of Asher. Asher is considered a lost tribe of Israel. If we talk about, we go back to the separation of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, like Israel and Judah, and then Israel ultimately is destroyed. Uh, Judah is what survives and becomes known as what we would call Israel now. But the ten tribes of the north, they were gone. They were scattered. They no longer really existed in the same way as the southern two uh, tribes. And so the lost tribe of Asher is where she came from. Think about that. The lost tribe of Asher is not lost to Jesus. That's important. Because even though she was from a tribe that had disobeyed the Lord, that had come under his discipline, has been scattered throughout the nations, even that tribe that was so disobedient to him was not lost to him. That's an amazing story. It shows that, that Jesus' work was actually fully redemptive towards the people that he would pursue. And so she may seem insignificant up until this point in time, but her life was about to take a dramatic turn. She had been a widow for an exceptionally long time, had dedicated herself to serving the Lord. She had, she had to have been probably just exhausted by this point of time in her life. And since it was customary for Jewish women to marry within their teen years, it could be said that you know, some t somewhere into her 20s is when her husband passed away, and she was now 86. So if she had been widowed early in her 20s, then she would have been praying at the temple for over 60 years. Faithfully. 60 years fervently praying at the temple. That is faithfulness. You know, I, I struggled to pray for something consistently for a week. Never mind 60 years. To persistently serve God without an, like immediate results, right? Because we're the kind of people who say, well, I prayed and God didn't answer, so I didn't get my immediate results. Here she is 60 years going to the Lord, not receiving the immediate results is a real test of faithfulness. Verse 38, you have this unrelenting thanksgiving and testimony of the redemptive role of this long-awaited Messiah. Because we read here that she began to, as she coming up to them, the very moment she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Who, or sorry, redemption of Jerusalem. Who was looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem? Everyone. Every single Hebrew person was looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So who did she talk to? Everybody she could find. Everybody she could find. Importance of having a thankful spirit based on experiencing God's faithfulness over the years rather than becoming bitter from the waiting on God's redemptive promise. 
This is what she has. They were looking for the coming of Messiah. That's what Simeon and Anna were looking for. We're looking for his return. And the question that we have then as we wrestle in this is do we have the same level of faithfulness praying into this? Seeking the Lord to fulfill the promise that he had made. You see, for Simeon and Anna, and specifically Simeon, because he was promised that he would not die before seeing the coming of the Messiah, with God, a promise made is a promise fulfilled. And Anna experiences this as well because she believed in the promise of the coming of Messiah. And so here is Jesus. He is the promised one. She starts telling everyone. He's like, okay, Lord, I'm good. I can come home now. Like we have this incredible image of what it meant for Jesus to be exactly who the scriptures call him to be. And then after this, you had a very subtle and, and downplayed language here where it says, um, where it says here, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. And so when they had performed everything according to the law, they returned to Galilee, their own city, Nazareth, and Jesus grew. He grew and he was filled, he grew in the spirit, he grew with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. And when they had performed all these things, Luke is emphasizing that Jesus was perfectly obedient to God, even as a child. The child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. Jesus grew and he developed just like other children did. And so there is this relating to the human experience in the fact that he grew. And this is where his spiritual development is probably first noted, I would say. Now, you might say that Jesus was aware of his identity and his calling as appropriate to his age development. And so, for example, at age five, he didn't have the understanding of a 30-year-old. But he had the greatest capacity for understanding appropriate for a five-year-old. The development of Jesus gives inspiration for believing parents today. They always pray for the children to become strong in spirit and to be filled with wisdom, and they guide their children in those paths. With Jesus, the grace of God was on him. The goodness and favor of God was evident in his life, even as a child. And so Jesus experienced the idea of growing it is safe to say that he understood who he was in age-appropriate ways, you could say. That his understanding at a 30, as a 30-year-old may not be the same as his understanding as a 5-year-old. And by that, what I mean is like, it's not like Jesus came out of the womb talking. We, we have, to some extent, this idea that Jesus was just inhuman in a way, like superhuman in a way. And, and yet he bled. He experienced temptation in the wilderness from the devil. And, and although he didn't succumb to temptation, there's this human experience that Jesus did in fact actually have. Uh, because even Hebrews tells us that we have this Savior that we're able to call upon who can relate to us. What we find is that even in those youngest of days, 
the grace of God was on him. And so in the story of God and his this in the story of God and his creation, we now have this movement from the promise of the coming of the Messiah to then what you would say is the reality of God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's what's taking place here. And, and so everything that's taking place here, the chapter one giving us the prelude to what was taking place, uh, the the account of Jesus's birth, the account of him fulfilling the fact that he is born under the law, according to Galatians, um, the idea that Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law. Um, and, and so all of these different things are set in place to give us the context for everything else that is about to happen. We move from waiting on the promise of Messiah to now Messiah, God with us, being present. So God promises a Messiah. God gives a Messiah. God promises the Messiah is going to carry the inequities of the world. In, like the saving work of Jesus on the cross. His resurrection. His defeat of death. His defeat of sin. It was promised and fulfilled. And we as a people now have this, this promise that we get to look forward to, which is the return of Jesus. And we don't know exactly when that's going to be. But we are to live expectantly, much like Simeon and Anna did. We are to live in such a way that we're looking to the Lord and we're praising Him and we're glorifying Him and we're worshiping Him and we're petitioning Him for His Messiah, for Jesus to return. But the greatest news that we have in all of this in terms of where we can lay confidence is that God has proven that where God makes a promise, that promise is fulfilled. And so we get to look into this story and see how God is orchestrating history, showing that Jesus was a, a man under the covenant of a covenant people. He's under the law. And yet we see the beginning stages of his fulfillment of the law. This is an incredible, incredible narrative historical account of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the light of the world, the glory of Israel, the Son of God, God with us. That's something pretty exciting to be looking at. My encouragement to you is to lean into the idea that a promise with God, a promise made, is a promise fulfilled. And He promised you salvation. We don't have to doubt it. We receive it. We accept it. And we live into it. We don't have to doubt it. Because it's promised. And God has never backed out of his promises. And he won't with you. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue on in this historical account of your journey here on earth, Luke's gospel account uh, of your life. I pray, Lord, that we will be a people 
who gain more and more encouragement and our affections for you grow and our desire to be obedient to you, to serve you, and to reach our world uh, would grow as well as we become more and more like you. Thank you, Lord, that in you, a promise made is a promise fulfilled. Amen.